And how appropriate that Beth prayed for the Germantown Church of the Brethren as we talk about our history today. I hadn't looked at the schedule and, and didn't realize that that was the next church to, uh, to pray for today, but that was the first church of the brethren in, in this country. So, kind of cool. Uh, I like it when those affirmations occur. It's, uh, it speaks to us, I think. Well, you know, um, we're continuing this series on the church, and uh, DJ and the elders thought it would be important that, that we look at our own history, our own story, and see what that tells us. And I like history. Uh, one time Tim announced that, you know, I was there in 1843 when the first meeting house was built. But that's not true. Uh, but I do enjoy it. I do looking uh, back into history, not only of our church, but also family history and so on. It, it talks, we find out about our roots, and we can talk about what makes us who we are. And the idea is not just to keep it as history, but talk about it in respect of how does that inform us in the present, and how does it guide and mold and shape us for the future as well. So that's really our purpose for today. And every congregation has a story. Each story is unique. Each story is filled with successes as well as failures. So what can we learn from PFC's story? How does our story fit into the, the full body of Christ? How has it served to further God's kingdom here on this earth? And most importantly, how does it inform our role for the future? So we're going to really be doing a history lesson today, but... It's not just history. The idea is that we'll have an eye to the future. We want to also remember our purpose as we delve into our history today, that it's to inform our behavior. It's to inform our actions as a church body so that we build on the successes of the past. And those by successes, what I mean are those times when we really have been in sync with both the word and the will of God, and that we are careful not to repeat past missteps and mistakes, which would be those times when we were not in sync with the Word and the will of God. Now, in order to set the stage for the history of PFC, it's necessary that we provide a little bit of background. And I, I want to share a couple of scriptures with you as we get ready to look into that background. The first is Psalm 16.6. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. And that's an inheritance that we get from the Lord. Uh, and it's beautiful because God made it beautiful. God loves us. He wants us to be successful. He wants us to be blessed. And that blessing that he gives to us provides for that beautiful inheritance that we have. Um, <clears throat> we've come back and, and, and gone, gone to this uh, passage in Acts 2 a number of different times throughout this series, and it really describes the early church, and I want to share it with you again this morning, especially verse 42, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. You know, those four things 
really characterized the early church. And we want to use Scripture as a yardstick to really look at what we do in the present. That is a very important verse for us. And I want you to be thinking, especially of Acts 2.42, as we look at the different milestones, the different uh, periods in our history. How have we been faithful to devoting ourselves to the apostles' teaching, the teachings of Jesus Christ, the fellowship, and as we've had described for us, that's not just getting together and having a good time, it's not just sharing coffee and, and cake, it's having a common purpose, a common focus with our fellowship. To the breaking of bread, observing the sacraments, observing the ordinances of the church, and to prayer. So be thinking about those as we, as we uh, look at our, our history this morning. Uh, all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles, and all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. What a blessing that is. Well, the, the, church, the uh, Parker Ford Church is affiliated with the Church of the Brethren. And the Church of the Brethren has its roots in the Anabaptist and Pietistic movements in Germany. And the Anabaptist movement pretty much coincided with the Protestant Reformation. Protestant Reformation 1517, the Anabaptist movement began in Switzerland in 1525. But it continued all the way uh, through that time into the 1700s. And then there was the Thirty Years' War that took place. Horrible time. All kinds of fighting based on religious beliefs. Hor just a horrible thing. Uh, Germany lost 20% of their population during the Thirty Years' War. And the Pietistic movement came out of that Thirty Years' War. It started after that. The Church of the Brethren started in 1708 in an act of defiance. An act of defiance. And what was that act of defiance? Eight people were baptized. Eight adults were baptized. But that was against the law. The law of the then churches that were in control. There were eight individuals who were baptized and their leader was Alexander Mack. The Church of the, the Brethren was founded on uh, the Anabaptist principles that you see on the screen. <clears throat> the idea of restoring the early Acts church that we just read about in Acts 2. Uh, that together we would search for truth using Scripture, especially the New Testament where the early brethren believed the mind of Christ is most clearly revealed. And in fact, we don't have a creed in the Church of the Brethren. We believe that the New Testament is our only creed. And that we would live a peaceful, plain, or simple and compassionate life. And that's really captured in the motto of the Church of the Brethren, continuing the work of Jesus peacefully, simply, and together. That idea of fellowship coming in with the together part. Now, 18th century Europe was a time of strong government control of the church, a low tolerance for religious diversity. 
And as a result, the early brethren, along with Mennonites and Amish and a group called the Hutterites, were, were persecuted. And here you, you see somebody being drowned because they engaged in adult baptism. Drowning was the, the execution. That drowning was called the third baptism. People were baptized as infants. They then made a profession of faith, believed they should be baptized as an adult. And then they were executed if convicted by this third baptism, as it was called. This persecution really caused them to consider migrating to America. You see, they had heard of William Penn's holy experiment, and most all migrations with the Church of the Brethren took place from 1719 until 1735. Peter Becker, you've heard the name Peter Becker, the Peter Becker community over in Harleysville. That's where he was buried, but he was the first leader of the Brethren in, thir- in 17, <coughs> excuse me, 19. And Alexander Mack came in 10 years later in 1729. The first congregation was organized, as I said earlier, in Germantown. Now, this building wasn't built in 1719 when they first came over. It wasn't built until about 1770, but they met in homes during that time. The church was organized in 1723 by a baptism that occurred on Christmas Day in the Wissahickon Creek. Tradition says they had to break the ice. We don't know if that's true or not, but those were dedicated people that were baptized on Christmas Day. Almost immediately, the Germantown church sent out missionaries to the surrounding rural areas, uh, the areas surrounding Philadelphia. One of those was Coventry, East Coventry, South Coventry, North Coventry. And the Coventry Church of the Brethren, which is not too far from here, was founded in 1724, one year after the first baptism. There was also a church that was founded in Conestoga, also in 1724. This is a, uh, a sketch of the first Coventry meeting house. Now, it would have been built not in 1724. Again, they met in people's homes. This uh, log meeting house would have been built in about 1774, I believe. So this morning, as we walk through the history of our congregation, the purpose is to not draw attention to ourselves, and certainly not to toot our own horns. Uh, Those of us who have been involved in leadership know better than anyone that uh, any gains that we've experienced have not been of our own doing. We know that to be true. Sometimes we have been in sync with God's direction and leading, and other times... God has moved us forward in spite of ourselves. He really has. And as we look back with the hindsight that time affords, we can say without a doubt that we really didn't know what we were doing. Would you agree? Yeah. I, you know, I, I think that's really true. We tried. You know, we tried to study. We tried to inform our decision-making. But almost without exception... God would surprise us, pleasantly surprise us. Sometimes he would close doors, but other times he would open other doors. You see, God is a God of surprises. And as I said when Colin was up front, you know, I believe that God does that to show off. I really does. You know, to bring glory to himself. He uses imperfect, fragile, 
fallible human beings to carry out his purpose so that there is no doubt that he is in control. No doubt that he is God and, and does do it just to show off, I believe. You know, we have this verse uh, that's found in 2 Corinthians 4, but we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. So as I considered the history of our congregation, I spent a lot of time thinking about how to best present it. And I wondered what would be the best way to capture, you know, 211 years of history. And most importantly, you know, having our focus be on the future. That's so important that we do that, using this history to guide us in the present as we look to the future. We never want to get stuck in history. You know, even the early brethren anticipated the work and the leading of the Holy Spirit, uh, saying that uh, the Holy Spirit would provide new revelations coming forth, breaking forth from God's Word. And that's another aspect of, of what we do here this morning. Everything should be interpreted in light of Scripture. The Word of God should be the yardstick by which we measure everything. So as I looked at our history, I tried to identify major periods or milestones in the life of Parker Ford Church that would characterize us as the body of Christ. And uh, let me be very clear in saying that I have the understanding that if somebody else did this, they would have different milestones and, and different things that they would, would talk about. And to be honest, I think if I did this a month from now, I would probably have different ones as well. But I sincerely believe that this is what God wants us to hear today. This is what he wants us to be informed about. Um, I, I've taken the task of, of putting the message together very seriously. And it's not that I'm careless and, and carefree when I write other sermons. But, you know, usually when you prepare a sermon, you start with Scripture, and then you, you interpret that Scripture. This is different. We're starting with history and seeing how it fits into Scripture and, and fits into God's plan. So again, use Acts 2.42 to evaluate. Now, as I mentioned earlier, our history spans 211 years. Now, some of you will recall that we just celebrated our 175th anniversary last year. So where do we get the 211? Well, the anniversary that we celebrated last year was the 175th anniversary of the building of the old meeting house, of the original Lawrenceville. Parker Ford was called Lawrenceville back in those days, uh, the uh, original church building. Before that building was built, we operated under the auspices of Coventry Church. Coventry Church is our mother congregation. And the building, while not immediately taking place, it ultimately defined us as a separate congregation. So let's get started. The year was 1808. Thomas Jefferson was the third president of the United States, and he was in office. Gives you an idea of perspective when our history started. The Coventry Church of the Brethren was already 84 years old at that point. And some folks who were connected with Coventry and living in Lawrenceville or Parker Ford saw a need. And so we started out with community outreach in 1808. Four women collaborated together to set up a preaching schedule every four to eight weeks. And guess where they met? In the schoolhouses, 
You know, we think that that's a modern thing, that church plants use schools to meet in. Well, in 1808, that's how Parker Ford Church got started. They used the Parker Ford Schoolhouse, or the Lawrenceville Schoolhouse, that was located near the mouth of Pigeon Creek. I haven't located that building, but that's what we read in our history. They also used the Davis Schoolhouse, which was in Linfield. And apparently that still stands, and it's a residence at the corner of Ferndale and uh, Limerick Center Road. Um, These four women also made use of notable speakers as they were available. You know we have a James Quinter class, right? Uh, We call that the James Quinter class. Well, James Quinter was a real person. He had been living in Oaks. His father worked at Phoenixville Steel. um, And he had to support his family after his father died. But he had a conversion experience when he lived with the Fitzwater family. And if you know where Fitzwater Station is, down by the canal, it's a restaurant uh, down there. And uh, that's where he had his conversion experience. And he became on fire, really, for the Lord. He would preach all different locations, and he became a very well-known Church of the Brethren personality. He embraced the technology of the day, which was still the printing press, and became a publisher of uh, hymn books and uh, the what we now have is our messenger, along with another gentleman. But he uh, was very much involved in the Church of the Brethren. He was cutting his teeth uh, back in, in the early 1800s, the mid-1800s. So that's where we uh, get the name of that class. We also had a woman uh, named Sarah Reiter Major. She was the first Church of the Brethren preacher who preached at the Davis Schoolhouse over in Linfield approximately in 1830. So she was another well-known person that uh, participated. So you have community outreach taking place as early as 1808. 1842 to 1843, revival. Elder John Price, assisted by his son Isaac, as well as by John Umstead, and James Quinter. They were all holding services about every four weeks with occasional weekday evening services to help reach the unsaved. In the winter of 1842, this is what we hear from Isaac Price. These are his words. We had what we called a glorious time. Preaching came easy, house crammed full, and on a certain Tuesday evening, 16, on invitation, came forward. Father did not know what to do. His father was John Price. He had never then been in such a meeting with such a state of feeling. Swearers, drunkards, and such like came forward. And it says that he didn't know what to do. He didn't know how to handle this kind of spiritual response. Uh, And of course, in the life of Parker Ford Church, this conversion experience has been repeated again and again by people who have been a part of our congregation as well as other congregations. That spring, there were 25 people who were baptized In the following summer, in 1843, ground for the new meeting house was bought, an acre for $110, and the new meeting house was dedicated on September the 24th, 1843. This is the earliest church, uh, earliest picture we have of that meeting house, of that church on Bethel Church Road. That's where North North Point Community Church currently meets. Uh, Of course, it looks a little different. If you look to the right, you can see the buggy sheds for people to bring their horse and buggies. 
Notice that Bethel Church Road is also a dirt road still at that point in time. All right, 1878, spiritual development. Efforts were designed and put into place to raise the bar concerning Bible study and spiritual development. Most notable was the creation of a Sabbath school. Did you ever hear of Sabbath school? Sunday school, right? 1878 was our first Sunday school. Um, Although weekly meetings were still not taking place, initially all the classes met in the same room. Can you imagine what that would have been like? It wasn't long before a dear sister started to renovate part of the basement so that the children could have their own separate area. I wasn't, that, I wasn't sure if that was to preserve the instructional integrity for the children or to get them out of the big room where the adults were. I'm not quite sure. Um, this is one of the, uh, this is a woodcut of a, an early Sunday school class, not Parker Ford, but representative. And this is one of the earliest pictures that we have of a Sunday school class here at Parker Ford. This is on the lawn in front of what would become the parsonage beside the church. And it's about 1910, I think, about that time. Uh, The need was identified was to develop and grow the relationship of the faithful to their Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And it evidenced itself in learning more about the scriptures. In uh, 1885 to 1898, I I characterized this period in our history as cautious independence. We had operated under the auspices of Coventry Church. You know, they kind of supervised us and so on. The first quarterly business meeting was held at Parker Ford in 1885, and then they would alternate back and forth between Coventry and Parker Ford. The first love feast was held at Parker Ford in 1886. And by by 1895, it was decided that Parker Ford should have its own pastor. So a part-time pastor was hired, F.F. Halsopel. And he's buried up at Oak Grove. He was married to uh, James Quinter's daughter, Grace. So there was a family connection there. In 1896, Parker Ford was granted permission to hold its own business meetings and to have its own treasury. But they didn't take advantage of it. We really don't know why. They petitioned Coventry again two years later in 1898, uh, and they were granted permission to operate as a separate congregation. So you can see uh, some elements representative of Love Feast there. All right, 1904 to uh, 1912, educational enlightenment. The pastorate of T. Rodney Kaufman, Parker Ford's uh, third pastor, resulted in an increased interest in education. There were study groups and classes on the Bible and Jewish history. Teacher training classes were held. This is T. Rodney Kaufman there with a picture of the, uh, the, the building. And this is one of the teacher training classes. It's a great-looking group of guys, right? Uh, Kaufman also created a library at the church. And that library was created using the historical cabinets that are in the library, the room that we have, where we have some of our historical items in there. It should be noted that the church also contributed to relief work that was being provided to the victims of the San Francisco earthquake that occurred in 1906. In 1900, 18 people left Parker Ford to help establish the Royers Ford Church of the Brethren. And in 1918, 13 people left Parker Ford to help establish the Pottstown Church of the Brethren. So there was uh, 
outreach that was taking place there and to support other congregations. Community caring would, would characterize the year 1931. Of course, this was when the Great Depression had occurred and uh, the resulting uh, unemployment that was existing in the community. And the church made plans to help those families that were experiencing difficulty. Uh, this is uh, really evidence of responding to a local need, to having all things in common, as it says in that Acts 2 pastor, passage. I mean, This was... Uh, Certainly a significant need, and the church responded routinely to local families in need, but there was a special need during this time in uh, the history of our country. The church did not celebrate its 100th anniversary in 1843. Don't know why. They celebrated their 110th 10 years later. All right, renewal and reinvigoration taking place 1945 to 1956. The pastorate of Alvin Oldifer, saw a number of initiatives, most of which were focused on the physical facilities at Parker Ford. Memorial stained glass windows were installed. Those are the ones that we pilfered, I think was the word you used, uh, from the old church. We, we didn't pilfer them. Um, and also, we received a gift of the house next to the church, as I mentioned earlier, and that became the new parsonage for the church. It was located um, right beside the church, and it was given as a bequest of someone, uh, of the Hetrick family, that was. Kitchen improvements were made in the church, and there were plans to enlarge the church in 1947. Then using lumber that was harvested from the church property, poplar trees were cut down, and that uh, lumber was then cut into boards and allowed to season, stored. And then in 1950, that was uh, used to, to carry out the 1947 plans. We have a couple of pictures here of some of the construction taking place uh, at 1950. There was a six-room addition that was placed on the front of the original meeting house and lavatory facilities. No lavatory facilities in the church until 1950. Yeah, right, exactly. <laughs> there was an outhouse on the property right next to the buggy sheds. Uh, I remember the outhouse. It was still there when I was a kid. Um, here's the bell that's being taken up to the bell tower. That, was, that did not work well. They got the bell up there, but there were louvers on the, the openings of the bell tower, and when they tried to ring it, it was clunk, clunk, clunk. So they installed big horn speakers on the tower of the church, and every Sunday we would play a record of, you know, an LP of a bell ringing. Yeah. <laughs> Little known facts today. <laughs> now, there you can see folks carrying the bell up and the, the uh, what's that thing called? Clapper. Clapper, yes, for the bell. And there's looking at the, from the top tower and those louvers that wouldn't let the, the bell sound out. This is the dedication program, uh, December 10th, I think that says, 1950, uh, when the edition was dedicated. Also, a new uh, electronic Allen organ was purchased in 1956, and that was dedicated. So there was a lot of, of physical attention going on to the, the church building itself. But not all attention was given to the, the building during this time. The first missionary support that's recorded was in 1945, 
1954, a contribution was made to the Drexel Hill Congregation. And in 1958, a pledge was given to help establish the Paoli Church of the Brethren. There were also shares that were purchased to assist in the building of the Peter Becker community. You could invest in those shares and then cash them back in. The church decided to never cash them in. So that money was just donated to the Peter Becker community. Now with all of Parker Ford's internal projects, the focus seemed to be if they build it, they will come. If we build it, they will come, right? Just like that Field of Dreams thing. There was less emphasis on inviting people than there was on creating programs and then advertising those programs. The expectation was that people would seek us out. And we have to keep in mind that this was a different time. It was really the golden age, we could say, of the, the institutionalized church. You know, numbers were increasing coming off of World War II. Most people were connected with a church family in one way or another. Um, this whole idea of, of fellowship continued in uh, 1957, 1958. The church basement was proving to be too small and confining to hold church suppers and other events. And so a separate building was built at the bottom of the parking lot, uh, the fellowship building. Prior to this, uh, a group called the Tusum Club, which was comprised of married couples, had built a pavilion and a fireplace at the rear of the property to encourage fellowship. Also, the Tusum Club had been instrumental in creating a ball field, there was a softball team that played for Parker Ford, and different churches would have softball teams, and they would play against one another. Uh, the fellowship building was built with a majority of volunteer labor, just like the 1950 edition was built with mostly uh, volunteer labor. There were skilled things that needed to be done, uh, and, ha and so craftsmen were brought in to do plumbing and electrical work and so on. But the, the fellowship building was designed with clay pits for quates, for quates, throwing quates, and also for uh, playing shuffleboard as well. About the same time, an archery club was also created. So there were all kinds of different fellowship uh, opportunities that were taking place. Here's a picture of the fellowship building from about 1960. And then uh, Camp Swatara weekend retreats. You know, the men just were up at Camp Swatara for their retreat. Used to be a family weekend that we did, and that was another opportunity for fellowship, all taking place in, in this period of time. So there are a lot of opportunities for fellowship and to bring us closer together as a congregation. Numerical growth occurred in the 1960s. Uh, people did come when the building was expanded and these other programs were, uh, were put into place. Uh, folks invited people to come and participate. And the 1960s marks a peak in our membership with a total of 179. Uh, with those additional people came additional needs. There were more needs for benevolence, you know, helping people who needed help uh, in one way or another. There was also increased diversity of thought with more people. Classroom and Bible study discussion became more lively because of expanding our horizons and having more people come to the table. Uh, some of that caused some friction. You know, it's the idea, be careful what you ask for, right? We want more people, but we don't want your ideas, that kind of thing, you know. Not necessarily, but uh, it, it challenged us. It, it helped us to grow, I sincerely believe. Also, 1968 was the 125th anniversary of the church, and it also marked a change in pastoral leadership. Reverend Olderfer retired, and Pastor Bob Latchaw began his pastorate, and he would serve the congregation for 40 years, along with his wife, uh, Rosella. This is a 
copy of the program from 1968, which was the 125th anniversary. 1972, um, Revival. Now, I, I, I have to be cautious here. Our church sent two individuals to Explo 72 in Dallas. And those were Chris Elliott and myself. Now, I do not want to presuppose that we started revival at Parker Ford, okay? But it was one of the first times that we sent representatives to a national-type gathering. And then there were a lot of other influences that uh, occurred because of that. Um, it was Expo 72, for those of you that don't know, was organized by Campus Crusade for Christ. Uh, Bill Bright was the leader at the time. Billy Graham spoke every night of that uh, event. It definitely was a mountaintop experience. There were 80,000 people gathered in Dallas, Texas. And it's, I believe it's one of the main reasons I became a, a minister. And Chris, I think, feels the same way. You know, it, it made a, an impact on us uh, very, in a very real way, <clears throat> as well as to train us how to share our faith with others. Those uh, nightly events were held in the Cotton Bowl, and in addition to Billy Graham, there were also musicians such as Chris Christopherson and Johnny Cash. So it definitely was a high point. And then we came back and shared what we had gained, what we had learned. Following that, 1977 to 90, I would characterize that with programs and prayer. Now, during this time, there were a number of programs that Parker Ford embraced. In 1977, there was the Macedonian Mission. In 1984, there was the Lay Witness Mission. In 1987, Venture in Discipleship, which was a follow-up to the Lay Witness Mission. And in 1987, Passing on the Promise. Most of these programs had an evangelistic focus and were about preparing us to share the gospel with our community. And then in the late 1980s, a program called People Spots really caused us to rethink some long-held ideas about what would make a difference in having people feel welcome as they came through the doors of our church and as a result, there were several important changes that were put into place from people spots. There were new Sunday school classes that were instituted that were geared toward new attenders, um, entry-level attenders, I guess we could say. There was discipleship training and also the addition of a second earlier worship service that was less formal. Now, during this time, there were also... Prayer became an integral part of Parker Ford Church. Not that it wasn't an integral part before, but it became even more important. And there were a number of prayer vigils that were held on a regular and routine basis. Uh, there would be a sign-up sheet for 24-hour prayer. You would sign up for a half an hour or an hour. And there were a number of events that were prayed over. We would pray over Love Feast before we would hold Love Feast. There are a number of folks who had health issues, and prayer vigils were held for those individuals. I think of Karen Leparulo, who had leukemia, I guess it was, right? And she absolutely credits the coming together and the petitioning God for her healing as being what really made a difference. And I think that that's something that we haven't had a prayer vigil in a while, you know? And I think that's something speaking personally, that we really need to embrace as a congregation and, be, and, and have that 
engine of prayer be what is the driving force in our congregation, something that I'd really like us to, to, to think about. In uh, 1990 to 1999, I put that down as increasing faith. You know, numbers were increasing again, and it prompted the need for possible expanded facilities and updated facilities as well. And a facility expansion committee was formed and explored a variety of options for expanding, and this was, all of these were precluded for one reason or another. The size of the, the site, the septic system, pro, system problems that we had on the site, the fact that we had an old building with stone walls, it was very difficult to uh, enlarge that building and to add on to it. Uh, we tried to buy the house next to the parsonage. There was the church, the parsonage, and another house. And we were going to buy that. I don't know, I'm not totally sure what we were going to do with it. I don't think we knew what we were going to do with it. But the idea was to get more property so that we could possibly expand. And the congregation put a limit on what was to be spent for that project. Well, as we worked out the details for that, it became clear that it needed a new septic system also. And that caused the price to go over the limit that the congregation had set. So guess what? That door closed. And it's good that it did. It's good that we didn't buy that house because that would have depleted our building fund significantly that was used to create and, and, and build this church to go toward it. So, in 1999, the offer of a gift of 10 acres of land was a game changer for us. It absolutely was. The 10 acres that we're sitting on right now it caused us to rethink who we are and where we were headed. And the experience caused us to stretch ourselves more so than ever before. This is where the church sits, the empty field, as we're looking down toward the Elliott Farm. So the year 2000 was really a time of discerning God's will. Would we move? If so, what would the new church be like? Would it be a church plant? Or would we replant ourselves or transplant ourselves? And there were a multitude of other decisions that needed to be made about the property and the building. We dedicated the land before we even owned it. Talk about faith, right? We had a dedication service on this property before we, it had been turned over to us. Of course, we had Ronald's permission. <laughs> And then came the planning and the countless hours of meetings and site visits. And groundbreaking was, uh, was held in 2005. You can see some artists, uh, architect sketches there. Groundbreaking in 2005. Construction. And while a majority of the work was completed by contractors, dozens of church members provided oversight, landscaping, uh, insulation, insula uh, insulation, installation, Wiring, cleanup, and uh, decorate, uh, decorating the church as well. You know, I have to point out also that one of those times when we were trying to decide what to do, that perhaps this church would be a plant of the old church, we had a vote for that. Remember that? And what did it fail by? Half of a percent? How, cl how clear is that, that that's God's will? You know? It was clear that we were to transplant ourselves here. 
But that idea that we had, it was embraced, so to speak, but yet it failed. You know what I mean? It failed by that little bit of a margin that told us, well, this is what you're supposed to do. Another example of, of being, uh, being held in the palm of, of God's hand. So, 2006, leaving the familiar. We had moving in Sunday in this church, in this uh, building uh, in uh, 2006, and we brought symbolic items with us. The ushers brought the offering plates to represent our gifts, also to represent our gifts of our talents and our abilities as well. The primary department, uh, we had one of the children bring one of the primary department chairs to this building. I have my notes from 2006 here. And uh, we had our moderator, who was Byron Wenger at the time, he and his wife brought the Church of the Brethren logo that hangs in the library to represent our, our historical association with the denomination. We had the deacons bring a pitcher and towel to assist us in recalling our own history, as well as the traditions that we separate. The Tao represents service. Hymnals, everyone present brought, from the old church brought the hymnals up, which I think is pretty cool, uh, to represent the praise, lifting our voices during worship. The King's Kids class, through the senior high students, brought Bibles, uh, obviously representing the Word of God, being it, it was the Word of God, not representing it. And then uh, uh, Pastor Bob and Rosella Latchall brought the cross that hung on the, the uh, pulpit. And of course, remembering why we're here. The, the cross, of course, is empty because we serve a risen Savior. So that symbolism was a part of leaving it behind. But we, we made a very real, in a very real way, we said, you know, when we leave that place, we don't leave the memories behind. We take the memories with us. Anybody that goes in that building has no idea of what that meant or what it was all about. It's the memories that we take with us, that we hold with us. All right, so there's the new church. 2008, stepping out in faith. We had never had a full-time pastor up until 2008. And in 2008, we hired two. <laughs> Talk about a faith experience. And they helped to raise some of their own support initially. But for us to go from part-time to two full-time, that was a stretch, and that was a real stepping out in faith. And it was important to those two pastors, to Tim and to Tim Deering and to Josh Bitework, that we would reach out into the community. Josh reaching out through his prayer in the community, and Tim with the organization of the Netzer Group to provide regional support for the pastors in our area. There, there's a picture of them. And also the idea of reaching out. There's the Netzer logo as well. That's a very unique thing that we do as a congregation to support other churches, to support other pastors in the region. Uh, and I, it's really very cool, I think, that we do that. So... 2020, very appropriate. What's our vision? 2020. What is our vision for the future? You know, I, I have these notes from 2006, and it says what we see for the future. And I, I want to read what we shared in 2006 and see if it's still, you know, on target. What we see for the future. 
We see a church that is continuing to grow spiritually. We have observed evidence of this type of growth and anticipate more. We see a church that is increasing in its sacrificial giving. Credit to the saints who have made changes in order to enable others to find their way. We see a church that looks outward to evangelize, but doesn't forget to look inward in order to nourish existing members. We see a church where members know what their God-given spiritual gifts are and then try to use those gifts. We see a church that is serious about continuing to follow God's will in the life of the congregation. We have been blessed by following God's will, <clears throat> and his blessing will continue as we work to discern what it is that he would have us do. We see a church that builds on its reputation of being friendly and encouraging, taking those qualities to new heights. We see a church that will face new challenges, those that have not even yet been anticipated. But as a congregation, we will not give up. Instead, inspired by the example of Christ and the work of the Holy Spirit, we will, diligently, we will work diligently while it is day. Remember, the fields are white with harvest. Behold, I say unto you, lift up your eyes and look on the fields, for they are white already to harvest. So that's an encapsulation of our history. Several common themes, you know, that, that uh, exist. We're, we've been a Bible teaching and preaching church all along. We believe in the authority of the Scripture. We've been able to see God at work and join Him in that work. We try to figure that out. It's not always easy. There are a number of individuals who have been called to the ministry by this congregation. It's, it's a high number compared to other congregations of our size, and that's, a, that's been a theme. Ability to embrace change and see what God has in store for us. And reaching out to those in need. Those needs continue to increase both locally and internationally. And then prayer needs to continue to be a focus. And we need to boost that up, I believe. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and the breaking of bread and to prayer. Let us pray. Father God, we thank you for our heritage. And we know that it's a goodly heritage because you're the author. And we thank you for your leading, for your direction. And we pray, dear Father, that that would continue every step of the way. Guide us and direct us, Father, as we make every attempt to be your church, a part of the body of Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.